I want to invite you to open with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 13. 1 Corinthians 13. At some point, we're going to look at 1 Corinthians 13. I haven't figured out where that's going to go yet. So we'll figure it out together. Um, But I do have a lot of the scriptures on the screen tonight because we're going to be looking at a lot of things and uh, we need to keep uh, on track and But there is a lot to cover tonight, so I'm going to be putting a lot of the scriptures on the screen for us. But I do want to look at 1 Corinthians 13 again at some point tonight. Tonight we're continuing what we looked at this morning. And I know we have kids in the room, and I said I would keep it... um, on a higher level so that the kids who don't understand these things and they shouldn't understand these things, amen, Uh, we shouldn't teach these things to little kids. I don't care what the politicians or some woke teachers say. Amen, Amen, thank you. Um, So, but we're continuing the discussion that we had this morning about, um, I'm going to call it tonight, the sin of pride. We just had Pride Month, not that we called it that, but certain people call it that. So I'm talking about the sin that's celebrated during Pride Month, and I think we all understand what that is. So when I'm talking tonight about the sin of pride, I'm not talking about the sin of pride, but rather I'm talking about the sin of pride. Make sense? Okay, great. Glad we're all on the same page. Uh, some, would, some, some may say, well, why, why are we focusing on, on these certain sins or certain issues, isn't this a secondary issue? Isn't the sin of pride a secondary issue? It's it's not a gospel issue. It's not at the the heart. It's not at the center of the gospel. And so some people say that since it's not a gospel issue, that we should be charitable on, on secondary issues. And I would grant to you that on secondary issues that there is room for charity on secondary issues. And even room for debate within the church and differences of opinion. Secondary issues. Secondary issues are things like the mode of baptism. The mode of baptism. Should we immerse or should we sprinkle? Now, we believe in immersion baptism, but for our Presbyterian brothers and sisters and Lutheran brothers and sisters... Uh, we don't split hairs about that. We don't break fellowship about that. They are our brothers and sisters in Christ. Uh, The issue of communion. How often should we take communion? Where in the service should communion go? Who is allowed to partake of communion? I know of some churches that you have to be a, a formal member of the church. If you're not assigned member of the church, you're not allowed to take of communion. We at Destiny feel that we have an open table, but we tell people that you should be a believer in Christ before you take communion. But there's, there's differences of opinion on how often, where it should go, who's allowed to partake. Those are in-house debates. It's a secondary issue. We, we hold it with an open hand. Uh, certain points of eschatology, the study of end times, up for debate, up for discussion, secondary issue. Uh, worship style. Should we sing hymns? Should we sing contemporary songs? Should there be an organ? Should we have drums? All of these things. Should we use hymnals? Should the words be on the screen? What kind of lighting should there be? You know, all of these 
things. They were up for debate. We can have conversation about them. They're not central issues. Therefore, we can have charity about them because it's a secondary issue. But I would submit to you that what we're talking about today, the sin of pride, that this is not a secondary issue. And that this is a gospel issue. It is a gospel issue. You might say, well, how is it a gospel issue? Why is it a gospel issue? What does this particular sin have to do with the life, death, burial, resurrection, return of Christ, the gospel? Well, it's a gospel issue because of this. Jesus came to deal with sin. Jesus came to be the atoning sacrifice for sin. And if there is no sin, if, if, if you declare, if you say that something that the Bible so clearly, repeatedly, emphatically, demonstrably declares is sin, but you now declare, no, that's not sin, it gets to the very heart of atonement. In fact, if, it's, if, if there's no longer sin, there is no more need for atonement. And if you can do that with this sin, why can't you do this with any other sin in the Bible? And so if you, if you erode sin, you erode the gospel. And so this is a gospel issue because this is a sin issue. Now, the definition of sin, we haven't talked about it recently. I haven't brought it up recently. When I was in youth group, uh, I was taught that the definition of sin is missing the mark. That you, uh, it's kind of like when somebody, you know, is, is aiming at the bullseye and, and they miss the bullseye and, and they, they miss the mark. That's the definition of sin. Um, no, that's not the definition of sin. The definition of sin is breaking of God's law. That's the definition of sin. Lawlessness, breaking of God's holy and righteous law, his commandments. When we break the commandments, we sin. When we keep the commandments, we glorify God. If, if we want to use a bow and arrow uh, analogy, it's not just aiming at the target and missing the mark. It's aiming our arrows at God and saying, I hate you, I hate your law, I hate your word, and I want nothing to do with it. That, that's sin. It's not just, oh, I was just off a little bit. I tried really hard, but no, oh, you know. No. Sin is lawlessness. Sin is breaking of God's good and holy and righteous law. So if the sin of pride is no longer a sin, is anything a sin? What, what, if, if that is not a sin, what is sin? And this is why this is not a secondary issue. Because if there's no sin, there's no need for a savior. And that's the gospel. Jesus came to save sinners. Like me and like you. And so this is a gospel issue, so that's why it's important that we understand it in that way clearly. Now this morning, what we talked about was self-worship and how the, really the religion of our day is this, this worship of the self and that unfortunately even that religion has crept its way into the church. And we've seen that that religion, the worship of self, is totally compatible with this sin of pride. Therefore, those within the church that do not worship God but instead worship themselves, their own happiness, their own, uh, their own pleasure is, is the chief end of their life, 
Therefore, they willingly embrace others who, who worship that same God, who are part of that same philosophy or that same religion. And this is why that sin, the sin of pride, has become so widely accepted within the church is because the sin of pride, before that was ever an issue in the church, the church caved a long time ago to the love of self. The church caved a long time ago to this self-love, this self-worship. A long time ago. Back when I was a kid, this stuff crept into the church. It's come in under many different names. Probably the most recognizable would be called the prosperity gospel. The prosperity gospel is the worship of self. This is why this gospel is so dangerous. Not because prosperity is a bad thing. Prosperity is a good thing. But prosperity is a bad God. Prosperity can become an idol. And the prosperity gospel moves God to the side and it puts your own health and your own wealth and your own joy in the center, moves God to the side and says, you can use God to get your idol. You can use these verses, you can say these words, you can make these affirmations and declarations of faith, and you can have what your heart really, truly desires. We're just using God to get what we really want. Yes, God is a God of blessing. Yes, absolutely. But God does not exist for our good pleasure. We exist for his good pleasure. The prosperity gospel is self-worship packaged in Christian lingo. So this issue of love and self-love and what we love and what is love, that's what I want to talk about a little bit more this evening. I shared with you at the beginning uh, this baseball cap that I saw with the slogan on it, love is love. How many of you have heard this slogan? Love is love. Now, on the surface, surface, this seems like the most obvious statement in the world, that one, thing is it's, that, it, that one thing is itself, because it seems like it's saying, uh, you know, you could say anything is anything, right? Uh, a black is black. Well, of course, black is black. White is white. Of course, white is white. This is this. But that's not what's being said by this statement. You, you understand that. What, what's being said by this statement is that the sin of pride is love. And so I want to dive deeper into this idea, this concept, because I think many Christians are good-hearted, they love people, they're not like me, thank God, thank God. And I love people, I, I don't, don't get me wrong, it's not that I don't love people, but, but they, don't, they don't like to debate, they, they're not really into confrontation, you know, they just... This kind of stuff makes them uneasy. What do I do? I don't know. You know, my, my, my niece is now my nephew. I don't really know what to do about this. I love them. And so a lot of Christians end up embracing the sin because they don't want to alienate the sinner. But I want to help you see that we need to see things the way God sees things. That God embraces us without embracing our sin, right? 
And so we need to be more like God and less like what the culture would try to demand of us. So I want to help you see tonight that this statement, what is being said here, that this is not a true statement. Because this statement is saying that anything called love today is true and genuine love. And that's not true. The great irony in all of this is that we, we as Christians, when we as Christians say what the Bible says about love, we are called unloving. That's the great irony. When we as Christians say this is what the Bible says about love, we are called unloving. Things get thrown around like, I thought Christians were all about love. Isn't it in your book that says God is love? I thought Christians, aren't you supposed to love your neighbor? How is it that you're saying all of this unloving stuff to me if you're supposed to, you know, do like Jesus said and love your neighbor? You're not being loving right now. And many Christians just kind of melt like a ice, you know, like a, like a popsicle out there in the Texas heat under that sort of thinly veiled antagonism. What they're saying is if we don't affirm the sin of pride that we are violating the Christian ethic of loving your neighbor. This is not true, of course. If you're sick, you, you, you're sick for a, a several weeks and you go to the doctor and they run all kinds of tests on you. The blood work comes back, the scans come back. You sit down with the doctor to go over the results. The doctor looks at the results and they say, Mr. So-and-so, Mrs. So-and-so, I'm so sorry to tell you this, but your body is full of disease. Your body is full of cancer. Is that doctor being unloving in that moment? No, in fact, that's the most loving thing that he can do in that moment is to tell you the truth. Now, do you want to hear that? Do you want to hear that? No, nobody wants to hear that. But if he goes on to say, but there is a cure, it's a miracle, really. And all you have to do is go down this pathway and here is the cure to your disease. You will be forever grateful. Sin is a cancer. Sin is the cancer of the soul. It produces only death. Of course, not when it is small and not when it is little, but when it is full grown, it produces death. And sin is growing unchecked and unseen in the hearts of countless millions around us. Sin is growing and will produce death in the souls of our family, our loved ones, our co-workers. And there is a cure. There is a cure. A perfect cure. Are we unloving to tell them of the disease and of the cure that we once too were so diseased with sin, but we have been set free, we have been cured by the blood of Christ? Is it unloving? No, it's the most loving thing in the world. It's actually unloving to stay silent and watch their souls rot and burn. No, staying silent is not loving. So, 
Um, let's go to Matthew. I think I have this on the screen. Matthew 22. I want to look at this passage that is so often quoted and thrown in the face of Christians. Matthew 22, 34 to 40. But when the Pharisees heard that he, Jesus, had silenced the Sadducees, these Pharisees, Sadducees were two um, factions within Judaism and they believed different things. We don't have to go into what the, the differences were, but they, they didn't normally get along. So Jesus puts the Sadducees to silence. The Pharisees decide they're going to come together and, and try to trap Jesus in his words. So they gathered together, and one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Now, when we hear lawyer, we think the Texas hammer, Jim Adler, you know, call 444-44444. That's not the kind of lawyer that this is talking about. This is talking about an expert in the Jewish law, God's law. This person has studied God's law his whole life. And so they come together. They say, what, what kind of, how could we trap Jesus? What sort of question could we come up with to test him? So they come to him. They say, teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Of all of the commandments in the law, of all 613 commandments in the law of Moses, which is the greatest? And Jesus said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. This is the great and first commandment, and the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On on these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Jesus here quotes from two different Old Testament passages. To love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. That's Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 5. To love your neighbor as yourself is Leviticus 19, 18. And then Jesus synthesizes these together and he says, on this, all of the commandments come. All of the law flows out of these two commandments, loving God and loving your neighbor as yourself. And so love is incredibly important. That this is the obligation that we have as God's people to love Him and to love our neighbor as ourselves. So, how we define love is at the essence of the Christian faith. What is love? What does love mean? Is anything called love love? When I talk about the enchiladas that I had this afternoon and I say, I loved them, is that the same thing Jesus is talking about here as the greatest goal and objective and and the greatest obligation that I have in living my life? We use our language so casually, especially this word love. Is anything that we call love, is it truly love? Is the sin of pride, is that equal to love as what Jesus is talking about here? The question arises, where do we go for our definition of love? Or the question that I 
I pose quite often is love by what standard? By what standard? Of course, you know, we go to where? The Word of God. The Word of God is what defines what love is for us. The Word of God. Unchanging, inspired, inerrant, authoritative. Spanning cultures, languages, the Word of God defines these things for us. Too often, though, even as Christians, our concept of love is trained more by Hollywood than Deuteronomy. Our idea of love is trained more by Netflix than the Bible. Love by what standard? The Greek, uh, the Greek language had four words for love. Four words. So when we read our Bible, our Greek New Testament, that's been translated into English, there's four different words that are being translated as love. The Greeks had four words for love. Three of them appear in the New Testament. One of them doesn't. And so we're at a little bit of a disadvantage, even in our own English language, because three different words and concepts are translated as love in the Bible. So this first word, phileo, this is what's called brotherly love. Brotherly love. Affection, fondness, or liking. This is the, the city Philadelphia is named after this Greek word phileo. Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love. Brotherly love. So this would be the kind of love that, uh, somewhat the kind of love that we would have. Um, maybe the camaraderie that we would share at work. Maybe working on a team, you would have that kind of affection for one another. The second is storge. This is natural affection. This is like the love of a mother for a child. This, this inborn love. You, you just love naturally. The love of a parent for a child. This natural affection. This third word does not appear in the New Testament. It's not used in the Bible. Though it is in other Greek literature. It's called eros. That's erotic or passionate love. Self-satisfying. That, that in fact... A closer translation would be what we would think of as lust. This erotic passion and self-satisfying, and it is not used in the Bible. And then finally, the fourth word, the word agape. And this is the word that is used here by Jesus. When Jesus tells us to love the Lord your God and to love your neighbor as yourself, he uses this word, agape, which is sacrificial love. Unconditional love. And it is the strongest word for love in the Greek language. And it is the word that is used when it says that God is love. Now the love that God commands us to have is a truly agape love. Sacrificial love. 
Greater love has no man than this, than a man lay down his life for his friends. Sacrificial love. Not self-serving. Not I'm in it for, for what I can get out of it. I'll, I'll love you as long as you make me happy. No, no, no. That, that's not agape love. Agape love is serving love, servant-hearted love, sacrificial love. Now, the problem is in our culture, when the word love is used, it's usually talking about a combination of the first three of these, some combination of the three. Uh, liking, attraction, some sort of emotional response, possibly a, a pa passionate desire in the flesh. But very rarely in our culture when the word love is used is it talking about a, a sacrificial, self-serving love. But when the Bible talks about love, it's almost exclusively using this fourth word, agape. And again, most Christians, even today, their idea of love is those first three and not the fourth. When we think about love, it, it, it's, we have all these ideas, again, from Hollywood of, of romanticism and, and uh, you know, the, the goosebumps and, oh, makes my, my heart flutter and, you know, a feeling in my, my tummy and, and all of this, you know. And it's a big problem when the, the church's definition of love is the same as the world's. And more correctly, what we often call love, we should call infatuation. Infatuation is a strong but not lasting feeling of attraction, puppy love, a crush. And when we say we love someone and we're experiencing the first three kinds of emotions... That, that infatuation, that, that, that natural attraction, what we're really saying is, I like the way you make me feel. I like how I feel about me when I'm around you. That's what the world means when they say love. I feel good around you. I just, there's this electricity, there's this excitement, there's this buzz in the air. I feel good around you. I love you. When people say that, they're really saying, I love myself. And you are, I am, again, my self-worship, and you are enhancing my experience as someone who worships self. But this is not what the Bible says about love. When the Bible talks about love, it's not talking about the buzz that we feel it's not talking about infatuation. It's not talking about goosebumps. And again, we're trying to get to the, to the core of this statement, love is love. So we're going to look at 1 John chapter 4, and I believe this is on the screen as well. 1 John chapter 4. Verse 7 through 11, beloved, let us love one another. And every use of love in this passage is the word agape. Let us lay down our lives for one another. Let us sacrifice for one another. For love is from God. Where does agape come from? From God. 
Agape comes from God. And whoever loves has been born of God. You cannot even agape unless you have been born again by the Spirit of God. If you are not born again, Spirit-filled, you cannot demonstrate agape love. It's only by the power of the Holy Spirit that we can even love this way. Because it's supernatural. It's beyond us to love this way. Why? Because in our flesh we are selfish and self-serving. But the power of the Spirit of God enables the believer to love like God loves. Agape, love, is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us. What, is, what does this love look like? Show me, God, what, show me a picture of this love. That God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. That word propitiation means the atoning sacrifice. You want to know what love is? Look at the cross. That is love. The son of God leaving heaven, coming to earth, living a life without sin, exchanging his life of perfect righteousness, taking on our sin, and then suffering the penalty of our sin, the wrath of God in crucifixion. What is love? It is sacrifice, bleeding, dying. That is love. That is love. That is love. And the idea... The idea that what is being paraded in our streets under the rainbow flag is comparable with the cross of Christ is one of the most repulsive, repugnant, blasphemous ideas. The idea that the sin of Sodom is the same as the cross of Christ is the height of blasphemy. This is love. Jesus dying on the cross. And so, all men are created equal, but not all love is created equal. Everything called love is not love. And so this statement that's paraded around, love is love, it is false. Love is not love in this context at all. In fact, we could put it this way. We could use the Greek. It would make it more accurate. Eros is not agape. And that is what is being said on that. Statement. That, that is what is being said on all of the t-shirts, on all of the flags. When, when they say love is love, what they're saying is that eros is agape. And it's not. It's not. 
By definition, it's not. Why? Because love comes from God. Love comes from God. So, so how in the world can, can, can that even be described as love when God is the source of this kind of love? And friends, this is also the kind of love that we as Christians are called to show for our spouse, agape love, sacrificial love, laying down our lives for one another. So I want to I look at these two commandments quickly as we conclude here tonight. Loving your neighbor and then loving God. What does it mean to love your neighbor? Okay, agape, got it. Sacrificial, got it. We're called to do that for everyone, for everyone. To lay down our lives for the good of others. But what does that look like? How do I know if I'm doing that or not? Well, Romans 13.10 says this, love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. Galatians 5.14 says, The whole law is fulfilled in one commandment, one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. So we're called to love our neighbor. The whole law is fulfilled in loving our neighbor. Love is the fulfilling of the law. But when our modern eyes and ears read these verses, what we hear is, well, I need to have good emotions towards my neighbor, good feelings, good vibes. Be kind, smile, be courteous. And if I have good feelings and good emotions towards someone, I fulfilled God's requirement. I have loved them. That's us reading our definition of love into the text. But that is not what the text is saying. The text is not saying that we have fulfilled all of God's requirements of the law if we simply have good vibes, good emotions, good feelings, that we're kind to people. Well, how do I know that? Well, look at Matthew 5, 43 and 44. Jesus says, you have heard it said, you shall love your neighbor as, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Is Jesus telling us, and we, as we are to love our enemies, is he telling us that we have to produce strong emotional attractions to people who hate us? That we need to be infatuated with people who want to kill us? Some sort of sick sadomasochist nonsense? Is that what Jesus is saying? No, of course not. He's not telling us we have to have some sort of strong, emotional, good vibes, good feelings toward people who hate us and want to kill us. So what is Jesus telling us to do? What is he calling upon us to do? We have to obey him, love our neighbor, and not only that, but love those who hate us. Well, Romans 13.10 says that love is the fulfillment of the law. So when I keep God's law towards my neighbor, I have shown them love. When I keep the commandments of God, I know that the... The front of the book is really unpopular. The first 39 books of the Bible, people want to detach and just be, you know, New Testament, but it's one book. God wrote from beginning to end. Jesus was a Bible teacher. Jesus taught the Old Testament. Jesus taught the law. Jesus said he came 
Not to erase the law, but to fulfill the law. And here we see that Paul says that love is the fulfillment of the law. So when I do not steal, when I do not covet, when I do not murder, when I do not commit adultery, I am loving my neighbor as myself. Jesus calls his followers to behave in a lawful way according to God's law to everyone that we come in contact with. To fulfill the commandments of Scripture in a sacrificial way. That is love. Love as defined by the Word of God. Now, you you may have good feelings about that. You may not. You you may develop a, a, a strong emotional response to that. You may not. Nevertheless, whether you feel like it or not, we are called to love. And to show love. And we do that by keeping the commandments. By keeping the commandments. How do I know what love is? The law of God shows us what love looks like. The law of God. The commandments of God. And when I fulfill that law in a sacrificial way towards my neighbor, I have loved them. That is true love. Now, let's look at love for God. Love for God. What, that's how we love our neighbor? How do we love God? What does that look like? Well, let's take it straight from the Lord Jesus. John chapter 14 and chapter 15. I have these uh, scriptures on the screen again for us. Jesus said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Oh, uh uh-oh, it's back to the law of God again. Oh, Uh, It kind of seems like there's a theme here. Verse 21, chapter 14, Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself or make myself known to him. That we grow in our intimacy with God as we keep his commandments. Jesus answered him, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my father will love him and we will come to him and make our home with him. When we keep the commands of scripture, we are filled with the spirit of God, which empowers us and enables us to do this. Verse 10 of of chapter 15, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. Just as I have kept my father's commandments and abide in his love. How do we love God? By keeping his commandments. Jesus said it clearly. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. 1 John chapter 2. I have these on the screen as well. 1 John 2 verse 3. And by this we know that we have come to know him. How do I know if I know God? How do I know if, if I love God? How do I know if I'm saved? How do I know if I'm born again? If we keep his commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments. And his commandments are not burdensome. It's not a burden to not murder somebody. It's no no burden. It's not a burden to not steal. 
It's not a burden to not lie. It's not a burden to not commit adultery. These are not, these are not burdensome commandments. His commandments are not burdensome, especially to those who are filled with the Spirit of God, who, who have had their heart of stone taken out, which is hard towards God and hard towards the law of God, and replaced with a heart of flesh, where he is writing his law on our hearts. No, we love the law of God. I don't know if you remember, but the first service of this year, uh, 2019, not 2019, what year are we in? 2022. The first service of 2022 was Ju June the, no, not June. That, that one, help me, help me. January's the first month. It was January the 2nd, and we began the year. How many of you remember the, what we did on the first Sunday of 2022? Psalm 119. We read the whole thing for like 20 minutes. I almost passed out because I was out of breath. But it's all about the law of God. It's all about the law of God. It's the longest chapter in the Bible, and it's a love letter to the law of God. You could just flip it open anywhere if I could find it. The law of God, it's this love letter. I will meditate on your precepts and fix my eyes upon your ways. I will delight in your statutes. I will not forget your word. My soul clings to the dust, the earthly and the worldly things, but give me life according to your word. How can a young man keep his way pure? By taking heed according to your word. I have hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Teach me your statutes, O God. The way, of your, the way of your law, and I will keep it to the end. Give me understanding that I may keep your law and obey it with my whole heart. It's this love letter to the law of God. Listen, for the, the true child of God who's born again by the Spirit of God, who, who's indwelt by the Father, Son, and Spirit, who have come to make their home inside of our hearts, keeping the law of God is not burdensome. Now, sometimes it's not easy. And sometimes the flesh gets in the way and temptation, the world of flesh and the devil, and we fall into sin. That happens. But as 1 John chapter 2 says, if we sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sin and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. We have an advocate with the Father. And then with a right relationship restored, we, he picks us up, he dusts us off, and he says, get out there. Get out there, son. Get out there, daughter. Go bring me glory by keeping my commandments. Go shine the light of my love as you follow my word. His commandments are not burdensome. Second John, verse 6, And this is love, that we walk according to his commandments. This is the commandment just as you have heard from the beginning, so that you walk in it. How do we love our neighbor? By keeping the commandments towards them. In a sacrificial way, even if it costs us, we will do it. We will tell the truth, even if it costs us. Right? Thou shalt not bear false witness. Right? We have no other gods before me. We don't make any graven images. We, we worship God and God alone. We don't worship self. How do we love God? By keeping his commandments. How do we love our neighbor? By keeping his commandments, keeping the law of God. And so this is why 
Love is not love. Because the keeping of the commandments would forbid explicitly what is being described in that first word, love. Do you understand that? Because if I enter into a sinful pride relationship, not only am I sinning against God, I'm sinning against the very individual that I'm engaged with. It's not love, it's sin. Love is from God. Love is from God. So let us not be deceived into thinking and, and being caught up and trapped up in these silly little catchphrases. And let us have, as God's people, a better understanding of love that goes deeper than simple feelings that we might have for one another. My feelings are based on my emotions. My emotions are all over the place. If I lived according to my emotions, I would be a monster. Honestly. If I, if I said everything I thought, if I did everything I thought, I would be a monster. But my life is submitted to the law of God. I show love for my wife and my kids by not doing what's in my heart all the time. Hello? And submitting to the word of God. That is love. You know, what comes up a lot of times in marriage counseling is this phrase that comes up often, I don't love them anymore. We just don't love each other anymore. Okay, well, I understand you're breaking God's commandments, but stop. Stop breaking his commandments. Start loving one another. It's a commandment. But their whole concept of love, even Christians, is is Hollywood when it needs to be the cross. We die daily. We die daily to follow God, to love God. We die daily for our spouse. We die daily for our wife, for our husband, for our kids. We die daily for our coworkers, for our friends, for our family, so that we can keep the law of God and to love them and to show them love. It's not all about the fuzzy feelings all the time. Sometimes those come and sometimes those go. But it's about keeping the law of God. By the Spirit of God, as the Spirit of God enables us to do it. So if you are falling into this trap of thinking, well, I maybe need to find a new spouse because the old spouse isn't giving me the, the buzz anymore. Listen, go get a 9-volt battery, you know, just <laughs> stick your tongue on that, all right? Go, go test drive a Tesla, okay? Go, go like... To Six Flags, why ride the Wonder Woman, all right? Those things come and go. And as soon as that comes, it'll be departed just as quickly. Because it brings with it sin. And it brings with it the death that sin brings. And the condemnation of the enemy. And God doesn't want us to live under that condemnation. But to walk in victory through the power of the Spirit. There's, the, there's this... I'll close with this. There's a story in 2 Samuel. And, and it, it, it's the beginning of the story of Absalom. And it talks about one of the daughters that David had. And David, the king, had this daughter. And he had a, a son who was that. They were half 
siblings. They were from two different moms. And this son falls in love with his half-sister. He, he just infatuated. I shouldn't have said fall in love. I shouldn't have said that. He was infatuated with her, taken with her, smitten with her, all of the emotional trappings of, of what our culture would call love. He says he has to have her, he has to have her, he has to have her. So he sets up this whole scheme to trick her into his bedroom. He forces himself upon her even as she's begging him not to do it. And it says as soon as he was done, he hated her even more passionately than he loved her. That 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 those feelings of attraction were replaced almost immediately with feelings of disgust. And that's what sin does. That's what sin does. And that, that story, that tragedy, kicks off the whole story of Absalom as that sister was Absalom's full-blooded sister and he, Absalom, then goes and murders that brother for the shame that he did to his sister. That's sin. Sin leads us down a path promising something it cannot deliver, and in the end, it's only death, destruction, self-loathing, despising ourselves for the things that we do. It's condemnation. But God hasn't called us to walk in condemnation. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Because the law of sin and death has been replaced by the law of grace. And this grace leads us to walk in freedom from sin, following the commandments of God by the Spirit of God. Amen. Amen. I am done. <laughs> and I am tired. Um, I'm invited us to stand tonight. Oh, 1 Corinthians 13. Oh, well, go read it at home. As soon as you read it, you'll see that what we're talking about is not compatible at all with love. 1 Corinthians 13. Why don't we bow our heads and just give us a moment to respond. Why don't we just search our hearts just for a moment and um, invite the Holy Spirit to speak to us. And even convict our hearts if, if there is an attitude or a, a thought or even a sinful behavior that we've been harboring. This is a time now for the Holy Spirit to convict us, to speak to us. This is part of how the Holy Spirit gives us power to overcome sin. We need to submit these things to the Lord. And maybe there's someone that you've had a really hard time loving. And Jesus calls us to love our enemies and you say, I don't know how I can do that. But I want you to understand that God does not ask us to do anything that he himself has not already done. Jesus has already loved his enemies. And through his love, he turns his enemies into his family. 
so let's even right now begin to pray and ask, Lord, who is it that I need to show love to? Who is it that I have not been keeping your commandments towards? And Lord, that you would forgive us of that sin and that you would help us through the power of your spirit to truly love as you have loved us. And that that love, that agape love, would even begin to transform relationships, transform hearts, transform lives as you've called us to be salt and light. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.